Well, good morning to you, church, and it is a pleasure to be speaking again to you this morning. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, but I truly have one word that I felt the Lord wanted me to talk about today, and that is the word, amen. As I begin to study into this word that I grew up hearing so often, and uh, heard as the end of every prayer, the uh, shouts of affirmation when the preacher got really good and roaring. Uh, and, and I began to think this week as I suddenly just had this word upon my mind, my heart and soul, the word amen. And I, and I first thought, Lord, I, I can't preach one word. You know, what, what text is, what, uh, what verse of the Bible is going to be appropriate? And I did not find the verse until far, far later. And I just was enraptured by this word this week. And by a couple of interesting facts, and as you're turning to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 10, there's a couple of facts about this word that I didn't even realize. I, I sort of had learned in seminary at some point, but had kind of set aside in my mind. When we say the word amen, we are saying a Hebrew word that has been untranslated into the Bible. The Greeks took it, and it's untranslated in the Greek language in the New Testament. It comes straight out of the Hebrew Bible in the original language. And there's two ways to pronounce it. You can say amen or amen, but you should not say almond. Okay? <laughs> so we have amen and amen, but not the nut. <laughs> and so you can say it either way. The Jews had a pronunciation, and then us Europeans, we kind of you know, had a different one later on. The word is untranslated. It is a word that it says amen in Hebrew, amen in Greek. And when we say amen, what we're saying is the phrase, let it be true. Let it be so. Let it come to pass. Now this word, the Hebrews used it as a shout of affirmation to what God was doing. But what's important to know is that we do not actuate the presence of God or the power of God or the Holy Spirit's work by saying amen. What amen does is we, God's children, see God's work. We see His presence. We see His, His power in our lives. And we shout, amen, let it be so. Let it be true. Let it come to pass. Because spiritually, in eternity, it has already come to pass. Can I get an amen? That's what we're saying. When we say after every prayer, Lord, give our brother peace Amen. We're saying, Lord, give our brother peace. Let it be so. When we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, when Paul ends letters with this phrase, when Jesus in Revelation, he gives to John the Apostle the final revelation and in the last chapter, last verse, he ends it with, Amen. I am coming quickly. I am the Alpha and Omega. He's getting to the very end and he says, I am coming. And even so, Lord Jesus comes. Even so. And what's the final? What's the final in Revelation? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. And when we say amen in our lives, we're not just ending a prayer. It's not just a religious term that we've, we've grown up hearing and we're just supposed to keep saying. It has meaning. 
It has power because it's a word out of God's Bible. It has strength for you and I. It is affirmation for what God has done. And we're not controlling the power of the Holy Spirit by shouting amen during a sermon or praying amen when we finish a prayer at a meal or praying for a sick one. We're not controlling the Holy Spirit. We are seeing what God is already doing. The power He's already demonstrating. The work that He's already done. And we say amen because we see what God is doing. And our affirmation is not to justify what God is doing, for God has no need of our justification. God only said, I need, I desire, I will have your worship. This is what God has told His children. I will have your worship. I will redeem you. I will save you. I will take sin away from you at one final day. I will bring you fully out of the flesh. I will give you the glorified body. And from from eternity on, you will shout, Holy, Holy, Holy. He's going to be worshipped, our God. He will be praised. And when we shout amen to what God is doing, we're saying, yes, Lord, we see what you are doing. And we declare with one voice as your church, let it be so. Let the world see that our God is real. Let the world see that they cannot disrupt His wills. Let the wicked see that their day of judgment is coming. And let those who still have need of repentance see that today is the day of salvation. Amen. Let it be so. This word that we're so used to hearing, don't let it become so common that it loses its meaning for you. Don't let the power of this word, the reason that you say at the end of the prayer, why Jesus gives at the end of his prayer in Matthew. Amen. Let it be so. Let it come to pass. Bless you. Let it be as God has ordained. That's what amen is. That's what amen does. Let it be as God has set up. God will work. God will be glorified. We get to go along for the ride. Amen. And we get to shout with one voice as His church. Let God's will. Let God's work. Let God's salvation. And let the worship of God be so. Let it be so. And I begin to think about this text that the Lord put in my mind. Let's read this text together. And then we will pray. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 10. So it's verses 10 and 11. The scripture says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, we are shouting now in our hearts, Lord. We should be shouting with our souls that you, Lord, bring us out of the suffering. That you, Lord, bring us the peace. You confirm the salvation that we've been given, Lord. And when you say amen, it is so. We can respond, amen. We have seen that you have made it so. But Lord, we know these things we may still have to deal with. The suffering of this world. The confirmation in Christ that is needed for salvation. Lord, in the final amen at the end of judgment day, when you conclude your plan. And from that point on, there is only glory. There is only eternity. There is only Jesus. In his name be praised. Lord, that is where we are today. And we wait for that glorious day. So we end our prayer and say, let it be so. Amen. Look at this text because there are some things that Christians are going to go through. And I have three 
uh, points I'd like to make this morning. The first one is the suffering. The suffering. And now, uh, typically it's not fun to talk about suffering. It's not ideal to describe the sufferings that you and I may go through. Uh, recently, we've seen in this pandemic some suffering that maybe, maybe some hadn't seen before. But we know, based on this text, look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, there are two foundational truths here that Peter takes, he just says are presuppositional. They're here. They're going to happen to you. And the first one is, is that you're going to suffer. Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. They crucified him. What more will they do to you? Christian, you're going to suffer. Your suffering might only be the American suffering where we have not had to endure the persecution that we're seeing in foreign countries right now. Most recently famous in Afghanistan, where men with guns are going door-to-door hunting Christians. I saw a report that they were looking for phones with Bible apps downloaded on them. And, and we, ne- we never know how true those stories are, but I, I believe that to be true based on history. We've seen this kind of persecution. The early church experienced it far more than we ever did, and they had an issue that we've never had. They went through persecution. Uh, Cyprian, a church father, uh, one of the after, second, first generation after, after the apostles, he wrote a book called The Lapsed. Because they went through persecution. People had, had recanted their Christianity. Under torture, they said, you know, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Just please stop torturing my family. Please stop murdering us. Please stop hurting us. The persecution ended. The church began to worship openly again. And then these people, who under extreme physical duress, recanted their faith They wanted to come back into the church. And the church had this issue to deal with. Do we let them come back in? Should we say to them, no, you recanted, so get out. It would have been easy to stand on the words of Jesus, if you deny me in front of men, I will deny you in front of the Father. But Jesus also says, if you come to me in repentance, I will forgive you. So the church, and Cyprian, he wrote a book on it. They brought these people back in under repentance. That if they truly repented for what they'd done, and and some of these people, had given up other church families under the torture, and those families had been hurt or even lost from the church. Can you imagine? you imagine sitting in church and someone who used to go to church with you, he's trying to come back to the church, but he gave up your family under persecution and your child died? How would you feel? Only the forgiveness of Christ could let that person come back in and sit with you, couldn't it? Because you and I, I would not be able to. I might even say, listen, I think you, maybe you're a real Christian, you just, you just were suffering and you gave up, but I, I can't go to church with you. <laughs> There's no way I could sit here and sing those wonderful hymns while you're sitting across there. But they did. The early church let them come back. Under repentance, under forgiveness, and because of the work of Christ was greater, they let them come back into the church. Not only is this an example for you and I, but we, there's a different kind of suffering that goes on. And this isn't about persecution. This isn't even about the kind of the physical suffering, the ailments that we have. We, we all know these things are real. No, Jesus talks of a suffering that will come of the Spirit. Paul mentions this a lot in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians. He says that there is a war between you. In Romans 8, there is the mind of the Spirit, and then there's the mind of the flesh. And these two battle against each other. Later on in Romans 7, Paul gives us the reason for why we still sin after salvation. Because the flesh is tempted to sin and fall so easily. Paul says in Romans 7, that I often do the things I should not do, and I do the things that that I should do, I don't do them. 
Now, this is not an excuse. It would be easy to read Romans 7 and go, well, hey, Paul sinned, so <laughs> I guess I can just do it. It's okay. No, because Paul ends the chapter by saying, actually, let's turn there. Let's go to Romans 7. Romans 7, Paul ends this chapter where he has opened himself up to the church in Rome. Can you imagine being so transparent with somebody, especially in front of your whole church? Where Paul, who's writing this letter, who Jesus appeared to personally, is saying that I sin, I don't do the things I should do. Instead, I do the things I shouldn't. Verse 21 of Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, that is the spirit, but I see my members, that is the flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. It's not an excuse. It's not a reason to say, oh, well, Paul sinned and Adam sinned and everybody falls short. And I really, you know, it's not that big of a deal. No. Paul said, it is a big deal. You're wretched. You're wicked before God. And you need the salvation of Christ to redeem you. And even if it's after it's redeemed you, you still have the flesh. You'll still be tempted to fall. You will still be tempted to turn against God. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So Paul's using the Socratic method. He's asking a question that he already knows the answer to. He's hoping that you know the answer to it already. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's who will deliver this wretched man from death. That's going to free up this sinner from his sin. That's the one whom when the wrath hit the cross, the blood sprinkled upon his children. I mentioned this in Sunday school. The blood covers you. When God looks at you on Judgment Day, be thankful God isn't looking at you and your life. He's looking at Jesus. And the servant, singular, that he looks at is his son. The one he says well done to is Christ. And you and I get to go. Jesus, who calls himself our brother, we get to go with him to the presence of God. You ever had that moment where you just don't feel like you can go to church, but a friend, a relative, a spouse, a loved one grabbed your hand and said, I'll go with you. Let's go. That's Jesus taking you into the Holy of Holies. Jesus grabs your hand and lifts you out of the sin. And what no other person could do, Jesus did. And said, I took this for you. I will take you to the presence of God. Come with me and you will live. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I don't know what kind of persecution God might call you, me, or this church to go through. My obvious prayers are not many. I don't know, but here's a persecution you are already going through. Some of you know better than I this persecution. The flesh is waging war against you. The flesh is fighting against you every day. You never leave it. It'll never leave you. It's with you when you wake up. It is with you when you go to sleep. It is with you at every prayer, every church service, every song, every time you read the Bible. The flesh is there tempting you, enticing you, putting up billboards of sin and saying, just a little while, you've read enough Bible. You've prayed enough. You've been to enough services. Come with me and do what you want to do. And it never leaves you. Can you imagine a battle that never ends? A fist fight that there's no winner? It goes on and on and on for eternity. That's you in the flesh right now. 
And I submit to you, Christian, that this suffering you need to be aware of. You need to be aware that this flesh is after you and will try to destroy you, will try to give you on a plate to Satan for your destruction. But Paul encourages you, don't give up. You're a wretched man. You're a wretched woman. You're a sinner before God, but don't give up because Christ, Christ has fulfilled your work. Christ has taken your sin. Christ has given you salvation and has brought you to the true holy of holies. So don't give up. This suffering that we're going to see. Let's turn to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we who have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What did Jesus say? I will give you a comforter. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to take physical healing signs. I'm going to, do, I'm going to take all these things away, but I will leave you a comforter. I will leave you the Holy Spirit and He will heal. Paul, Peter, these men, the Bible speaks of them walking down the street and Peter's shadow physically healing people. The sick laying on the side of the road. That's the Holy Spirit. Peter, who's denying Jesus, who turns from God, Jesus pre-warns him that you'll deny me three times. Peter has done two already, and he still does the third time, even though Jesus told him he was going to do it. Peter still falls, fails, sins, runs away. But when Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is given to Peter, he stands up and preaches one of the best sermons in the New Testament. Thousands are saved in less than a chapter. And they come to Peter. He doesn't have to convince them. Peter doesn't stand up there and go, hey, play, play another song. They're, they're still coming. They rush to that man of God. And they say, how? How must we be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Come to the Lord Jesus. Suffering produces righteousness in you and I. That's the first point. If you'd like to make notes, write that down. Suffering in Jesus produces righteousness. It's the reason we're persecuted. It's the reason we have trouble and strife. It's the reason God has ordained these things to be is because suffering makes us more like Jesus. He suffered. He suffered more than any of us for He took upon the sin that He was going to redeem. Christian, say amen to suffering in your life. I know that doesn't sound right. I know that doesn't sound good. Say amen to suffering. Because you're suffering now. And you can fight it. You can argue with God. You can say it's not fair. Or you could say, Lord, let what you're doing be amen. Let it be so. Say amen to suffering. Second point in 1 Peter, it says, God who called you to his eternal glory. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. So this is the second point. And that point is this, the calling of God is upon your life. What does that mean for your amen? Well, let's turn to Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer, in verse 10, I just want to read verse 10, not the entire Lord's Prayer. 
Because remember, it is scripture. We can, you know, don't just read it as an entire prayer every time. Actually, think about the words. In verse 10 of Matthew 6, Jesus is giving them a model prayer. And he says in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the will of God is happening in heaven eternally, constantly, never stops, never runs out, never pauses. There's no disruptions. Even when Satan appears in front of God and Job, the will of God, the worship of God is still going on. It's not ever disrupted. He's asking us now to pray that the will of God, as it is in heaven, be done on earth. So in heaven, God is always worshipped. He's never argued with. He's never fought with. No angel turns against him. No, not even Satan can disrupt the worship service eternally in heaven. Why on earth, on earth, would we try to stop? Why would we disrupt the worship of God? Why would we let the flesh stop the will of God? Because if we're going to pray this prayer, if we're going to say that, Lord, oh, your kingdom come, your will be done. God's kingdom is suffering. God's kingdom is spiritual warfare. God's kingdom is the rejection of your flesh and what you want and what he wants instead. Be careful. Be careful you don't say unjustly, oh, Lord, I want your kingdom when your flesh really doesn't want this kingdom. Even more of a warning if your heart does not want his kingdom. If your heart is just playing that game, doing those motions, don't be that. Don't be fake before God because he knows. He sees into the heart. He sees between the bone and the marrow. He sees your soul. There's no tricking him. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And what is the will of God? When they questioned Jesus, what did he say? You love God and you love his people. The will of God is that we worship him. And that we love each other. What does uh, John say? That we will know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. They will know us by our love. They won't know us by when we correct them on Facebook. I know, I'm sorry. They won't know us by when we really just shut them down. They won't know us when, yeah, that's right, I got their mind right. God said they won't even know you're a Christian if you do that. They won't know by those actions that Jesus is with you. They will only know by your love. Because love, true love, is only produced by the presence of God. You and I produce selfishness. We don't produce love. Even the world right now, when they want, when they say it's love, it's just selfishness. All the billions given to charity, all the people who do wonderful things, there's a root of selfishness in them. It's true. And it's true as us as well. And we have to be mindful of this. We have to turn from this. If we want the kingdom of God to be done as it is in heaven, to be done not just on this earth, but let's just use this building, just our church. If we want the kingdom of heaven to come here, if we want it to be here as it is in heaven, then God is the only one who is worshipped. When we worship ourselves, when we worship our own flesh, when our flesh props itself up onto the throne of God and acts like it deserves to be worshipped, that is the failure. That is the failure. If you want the kingdom of God, you want the will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then you worship God on earth as He is worshipped in heaven. As Christians will worship God in heaven, He will say, holy, holy, holy. You will say, holy, holy, holy. The angels, all of us, everyone is singing, holy, holy, holy to God forever. If you don't like singing in church, I don't think you're going to like heaven very much. And I'll be honest with you, church, I have not found anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in God's Word where I get to do in heaven the things I like on earth. 
there's only one thing on earth that I like to do that I'm going to get to do in heaven, and that's worship God. And if you don't like that now, you're not going to like it then. I submit to you, this might sound harsh, but if you don't like worshiping God now, you're not going to have to worry about worshiping Him. If you worship yourself now, you're going to continue to do that. Only you're going to perish in what Jesus called the eternal death. Turn, if, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. This is a, uh, a text that is a favorite of mine. In fact, many of the students know that it's, in fact, my favorite verse of the Bible. I don't have to turn to it. I have it memorized because I think on it so often. But it's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul has been dealing with whether or not you can eat meat that's been offered to idols, whether or not you can you know, just buy stuff off the rack at the market because they'd have little idols propped up there. and Shopkeepers would have their, their God right there in front of you. And Paul kind of cuts to the very heart of the matter. He doesn't mess around. Verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, doesn't matter. Whatever you do, see it doesn't matter. This covers everything. Everything in Christianity can be summed up in this verse. Paul is making this point. Here it is. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is the will of God. That is the worship of God. Everything done to His glory. Christian, can you imagine if we truly lived our lives this way? I have tried. I have literally tried, days on end, every decision, every thought, even whether or not we should go to barbecue bills or the gathering table, I thought, what would be more glorifying to God? Don't answer that. <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> 1998 grill. <laughs> For those listening and not familiar with our area, that's a better restaurant. <laughs> what is more glorifying to God? And I see this with students because students are often at a crossroads because of their age. They're thinking about high school and relationships and colleges and jobs and all, where, where, cars and what to do, what to buy, where to go, who to listen to. And I simply say this to them. I say, what decision do you think will be more glorifying to God? Because they'll come to me and say, hey, I'm reading the Bible. It, it says a lot of what I should do, but it doesn't tell me what college to go to. It doesn't really tell me like what person to think about, you know, the type of person to marry, but doesn't say who. And they have a lot of questions like this. And when I say that, when I say, what is more glorifying to God? This true Christian, I can almost see it sometimes externally on them. You can see the Holy Spirit inside of them. They know. They know. And I can see their eyes just rolling because they go, actually, I know which one is more glorifying. The Holy Spirit right now is telling me. And then they make their decision. Christian, this, this is what God wants. This is what God desires. This is what God will have. Are you going to participate in what God is doing? God will be glorified. All glory will be given to Him. There is no one in eternity that will run from that, turn from that, disrupt that. Say amen to the calling of glory upon your life. God has called you, created you, and made you for this purpose, to bring Him glory, to worship Him eternally. Say amen to this calling. This is more important than anything you've got going on. This is more important. I, I'm about to say something controversial. Please don't throw me out of here. This is more important than your spouse. It's more important than your children. It's more important than even this local church right here. Now, when we properly glorify God, those other things will be right in line. Spouse, children, church, that's all going to be fine when you're glorifying God. But glory to God is more important.
it's far more important. Say amen to the calling of glory. That's point number two. If you would, we're going to go to point number three now. In 1 Peter, it says that the eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen us. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start in verse 4, where the scripture says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. This idea of confirmation, that Christ is the one who confirms you to God the Father, your place in heaven one day, even your attendance and participation in this local body of believers, Christ confirms these things. Not you, not I. Even when we talk about ordinations, we talk about uh, ministries as being started, all these things, it is Christ who must confirm them. Again, we're using the amen model. We see what God is doing, and we worship that. We see what God is doing, and we focus on that. We, we, we turn from other distractions of the world and flesh and sin, and we dial in on what Jesus is doing. And that is our model. That is what amen is. Let the will of God be so. Then 1 Corinthians says this, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus will confirm you, not for your glory or your benefit, but for His. And that confirmation will sustain you. This is why Jesus could say in John chapter 10 that if I hold you in my hand, Nothing can snatch you out. And please don't say, oh, but you can take yourself out. That's a heresy. You're not stronger than God. You have no power over God. The host of hell, Satan himself with his clutches, cannot take you out of the hand of God. But that hand of God might be a tight grip sometimes in this life. Like a child who's trying to squirm away from you, right? You got your hand on? That's us sometimes, and the hand of God will not let you fall out. Christ will sustain you. So Christian, when it's difficult, when this life is full of trials, when it's hard, and I know it is, I've prayed with so many of you, I've sat in the office with so many of you, I've talked with so many of you, and you encourage me so much, because no matter what you face, no matter even what our brother is facing right now, we know that we who are sustained in Christ will endure to the end. We will endure to the end. Christians say amen to confirmation, but not a confirmation of man. I've talked to so many Roman Catholics who their hope of heaven is a confirmation that was done when they were a child. And I'm sorry to speak against it if you're Roman Catholic or former, but it's a, it's a heretical practice. The idea that a man, even a priest, but a man could look at a baby and say, oh, they're definitely saved. Let's never disciple or evangelize them again. They're confirmed. And I've talked to Catholics who said, oh no, I'm good. I had my confirmation. And I try to find out, well, do, do you live for Christ? Are you demonstrating spiritual fruit? Are you worshiping Him? Oh no, I don't do any of that. But I had my confirmation. It's spiritual heaven insurance that has no true spirituality in it. It is a work of the flesh. 
and it will only last as long as the flesh can last. Christian, true confirmation is found only in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can sustain you. He's the only one who can present you to the Father blameless. He is the only one who can confirm that you are saved. That's why I don't like to tell people that they're saved. I don't like to say, oh, no, you definitely are. And over here, you're you're probably not. Jesus will tell you. Jesus will show you. Jesus will bring you to the place. And you you might wonder for a while. You might not know. God might work on you for over a period of time. He may not do it in one night. I had a friend uh, uh, who described it this way. He felt he was saved over one night. It's like he drove to Georgia. He knows exactly when he crossed over the state line. But another friend sitting there who didn't know, it was over a period of time, they suddenly looked back and realized that they had been changed and they had spiritually been saved. It was like flying to Georgia. They don't know when they crossed over. They just know when they landed that they were there. And I don't know which one you might be. But hope in that sustaining of Christ. Hope in that that, that hand of God that will hold you up. Hope that Jesus is going to present you guiltless because he is. He is. So Christians, say amen to confirmation in Jesus. Don't confirm anything else. Don't let anything else try to confirm you. In fact, everything else will do the opposite. It will try to take away God from you. Say amen to the confirmation of Christ. And there's one final text I'd like to end with, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I thought this was a beautiful text that really just kind of summed up my, my, my soul this week about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, we see that Paul says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God. So everything that says your salvation is true, everything that says your worship of God is valid, every promise of of enduring through persecution that Christ has given you, all these things find their yes in Jesus. The reason that they're valid the reason our faith is true, the reason that God is real and exists and is working in your life is because of Jesus. They find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we can say amen. See, we can't say amen without Jesus. We can't even know the work of God without Jesus. We can't be included. We can't be a part of it. We could sit in church forever. We could sit through endless services. But without Jesus in the heart right here, We can't say amen. But because, because Jesus has come down from heaven, because he offered himself one time as a sacrifice for you, because he took that wrath upon you when his blood sprinkled on you while he's bearing that wrath, you can say amen. You can say amen. You can say, you can can end your prayers. You can declare it during services. You can shout it to the heavens. You can say, let what God has done in my heart be so. Because it is so. Because of what Jesus has done. Not anybody else. Not any preacher. Not any worship system. Not any methodology. No other theology. Jesus. Start there. Start there. He's the chief cornerstone. And he's the only one that you can build on. Christians say amen to Jesus today.
as a believer already, say your amens as a form of worship. And if you do not believe today, dear brother or sister, I, I wish that you, I could call you that. But if your heart is not with Jesus today, your amens don't mean anything. So we don't want that for you. We so don't want that for you. So I declare to you right now, everybody wants to declare a word. I got a word from Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want a word? That's a word. You want a word from God? Love him, love his people. You want a word? Amen. Let what God is doing be so. We utter the same men to God for his glory. So Christian, say amen to these three things. Persecution, I know. Say amen. The calling upon your life, say amen. And the confirmation that only Jesus can give, say amen. Let's pray. My Heavenly Father, Lord, it is my pleasure to declare openly and publicly, Lord, that there is no other Savior. There is no other one who can and should be worshipped. There is no other person, Lord, who can save my soul. There is no other Savior for this world. So, Lord, we declare amen today. In our sufferings, we declare amen. Lord, in our, 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 our calling, we declare amen. And in our confirmation, we declare amen. And, Lord, I want to be clear. This word is not a declaration now that I've harnessed some kind of power. That I'm going to make something happen to me. That I'm going to put pressure on God to do something for me. No, Lord, this word, which means what God is already doing, what He's already set up, what His, His will, He's already working, we see it and we worship Him for it. Let it be so. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.